It is not customary from this pulpit to put forth business propositions, but I understand that John and Robin Chompko are now offering canoe trips down the current river, specializing in rainy, thunderstorm-filled days. John organizes them, Robin takes them. So ask her about that. All right. Let's pray together. And then we'll read. After the prayer, we'll stand and read from John 12. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of thy sacred scripture, the Holy Bible. We thank you for the freedom to just open this book and listen to the truth it contains. And indeed, this day, we would hear the voice of our shepherd, the voice of Jesus proclaiming thy name through the pages of John 12. We are humbled, acknowledging that our sin, our transgressions, our iniquity is before us every day. But thy word tells us that Jesus himself, thy Blessed beloved Son himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So we thank you and praise you for this great love, this great salvation. Please open our eyes to see thee and open our understanding this day, Father. Holy Spirit, soften our wills and our affections that we might say with the boy Samuel, Speak, O Lord, thy servant is listening. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of John 12, starting with the 34th verse, John 12, 34. This immediately follows upon the portion we looked at last week, in which the Greeks sought Jesus, and he speaks, this is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And John summarizes verse 33. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death, the manner of death by which he was to die. Well, verse 34. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ, the Messiah, is to remain forever. And how can you say this, the Son of Man, must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, departed, and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, 
he has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The word of God. You may be seated. Don't you love him. And does not this wondrous gospel of John lead us to knowing him more and more personally, listening to his thoughts, particularly as we enter into the final discourse, talks, chapters 13 through 17, and the joy of knowing that we shall see him face to face, the man, the God-man, We shall see Jesus, blessed be God, forever and ever. Hmm. Well, today we shall consider probably one key thought. There were two. They were in your title. But I suspect we'll stop, and that's why we stopped on the verse we did. Consider the scandal of Israel's unbelief. Verses 34 through 43, we remember that the blessed prologue told us he, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And throughout John's account, we have seen how the Jews grumbled at him, were persecuting him, seeking all the more to kill him withdrawing from Jesus, spontaneously picking up stones to stone him to death, and, and particularly after raising Lazarus from the dead, they aggressively sought to kill not just Jesus, but Lazarus too. They wrote their own narrative, just as our culture today is writing its own narrative. The Apostle Paul agonizes over this very thing in Romans 9, 10, 11. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law? Why? 9.32 of Romans, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Chapter 10 of Romans 2 and 3, Paul says, "I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. 
And, and so Paul comes to a conclusion in chapter 10, verse 21. As for Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And here in the 12th chapter, we have the same portrayal as Romans 9, 10, and 11. Here, John contributes to this scandal. Again, through his prophets, God denounces the Israelites for refusing to recognize and heed the messengers he sent them. And yet, God always overrides evil for good, achieving greater good, working out his purpose. Well, in chapter 12 of John, verse 34, the multitude assert that Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's saying he must die. And besides that, just who is this son of man? Well, they understood correctly that the Old Testament says the Messiah will be forever. But they failed at a hermeneutical principle. Thinking caps on. A hermeneutical principle, the science of biblical interpretation. They failed at the principle called the analogy of faith. This is what the reformers called it. The analogy of faith. That because all of scripture is God's truth, each particular within scripture will harmonize with the whole of what scripture says on the same topic. Which means you cannot take a spot and build a theological camp on this verse, which is in direct violation of other verses. That is a major guffaw, major error and cause of false teaching. So the book as a whole is truth. And, and their problem in verse 34 is they knew the passages that said the Messiah's reign will be forever. They're there. They didn't understand Isaiah 53. They did not understand a host of passages that spoke of the death of the Messiah. They just camped on one. You can't be the Messiah. You're talking about dying. Well, in verses 35 through 6, Jesus reproves them sharply. He charges them with shutting their eyes to the light and threatens that before long, the light they have will be taken away from them. Hebrews quotes and says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart against him. There is a danger to feeling conviction in church under the preached word of God and turning your heart away from it. The light might be withdrawn for a serious amount of time. Well, Calvin writes on this verse and says, when he says that the light is with them, he indirectly reproves them for closing their eyes and shutting out the light. And thus he declares that they do not deserve an answer to their objection because of, of their own will they seek an opportunity of falling into 
error. Listen to Calvin again, and this is a quote, not a paraphrase. Thus all ought to walk cautiously because contempt of the light is followed by darkness. This too is the reason why a night so thick and dark sat down on the world for many centuries. He's talking about the dark ages. It was because there were few who deigned, who were willing to walk in the brightness of heavenly wisdom. For Christ enlightens us by his gospel in order that we may follow the way of salvation, which he points out to us. For this reason, they who do not avail themselves of the grace of God extinguish as far as lies in their power the light which is offered to them. I don't want to do that, do you? But a stiff heart filled with anger or bitterness, it's exactly what you're doing. Pastoral reflection. Am I cautiously walking in the light he has given me? Am I walking very cautiously, thoughtfully, in the light he has given me. A night thick and dark is falling in the West, in this nation, in the state of Illinois. Calvin concludes it is because few walk in the brightness of heavenly wisdom. What, on the basis of what we have seen the last two or three years, what will the next 10, 20 years hold? And how are we preparing the young for the cultural societal darkness that they will experience? Do you understand the importance of the shorter catechism. Children's catechism here at Providence runs September 1st through the end of May each year. That means that June, July, August, there will be no children's sixth grade and down, but the adult and youth teen will continue. And what that means is our children and youth, sixth grade and down, will be exposed to the 107 questions and answers every three years. Our teens will be exposed every two years. There is pastoral intentionality in the Wednesday night catechism. Pastoral intentionality. There's a reason, reason for it. Verses 37 through 40, and you can look at them. John proceeds revealing that faith does not proceed from the ordinary faculties of men. You can't generate it. You can't faith yourself. 
Sinners do not generate faith. Faith is a supernatural gift from God. Now, in Isaiah, the words suggest punishment inflicted by God for past evil. Paul perceives the disbelief of the Jews as the reason God's salvation was sent to the Gentiles, Acts 28. Here in John 12, everything is based upon the sovereign will of God. <laughs> Unless his hand is in it, nothing is possible. Augustine says very well, God thus blinds and hardens simply by letting alone and withdrawing his aid. And God can do this by a judgment that is hidden, although not by one that is unrighteous. Hmm. God thus blinds and hardens simply by giving you your appetite, giving Illinois its appetite, giving America its appetite, and withdrawing his aid. And God can do this by a judgment that is hidden, although not by one that is unrighteous. Hmm. Can you quote it with me? Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's a good passage, easy to remember. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. We do not pretend to understand the infinite almighty God. We apprehend what we can, comprehend less, and obey everything that we see. Pastoral reflection. John Murray makes this comment. It's very telling. While I was still an Armenian, this concept has blessed me mightily. Because in the prison, there'd be 10-foot bars in front of me with concertina wire on top and 8,500 guys inside. And I'm preaching, wondering, what's the effect? John Murray says, we must never forget that it is by God's appointment that if his word does not quicken, enliven, it must deaden. If God's word does not enliven, it is deadening. So what is the regular exposure to the preached and read word of God doing to you? If it is not quickening you, if it is not enlivening you, then you know something. It is actually deadening you. And that's the danger of being a churchgoer who's not hard after Jesus, you're actually being deadened. Hmm. Consider chapter 12, verse 38 through 40 again. Calvin says this, He assigns the reason why they are few, and that reason is that men do not attain it by their own strength, 
And God does not illuminate all without distinction, but bestows the grace of his Holy Spirit on very few. And if among the Jews the obstinate unbelief of many ought not to have been an obstacle to believers then, though they were few in number, the same argument ought to persuade us at the present day not to be ashamed of the gospel, though it has few disciples. That is profound with pastoral reflection. We don't expect waves of the lost, unless there's revival, to suddenly come into the church. Many are, this is still Calvin, many are left in their blindness, destitute of inward light, because hearing they do not hear. Matthew 13, 13. Well, if this be true, with what grateful fervency and intensity ought we to pursue him who has awakened us? <laughs> To recognize that I am one who he has awakened out of this huge culture in darkness. You'd think would generate enough gratitude and thankfulness that I would do something with it. I'd open my Bible. I'd be pursuing him. To do nothing raises a serious question. Does this describe my life? Am I pursuing him? Thankful that he has awakened me. Going in and out of scripture, finding pasture, seeking him. I'm talking to you children, too. As well as every one of us. Or does my life represent a ho-hum approach to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Sometimes, and this be life wisdom, pastoral wisdom, sometimes you have to begin praying for what you don't want. Sometimes you have to ask God to give you the very thing you know you really don't want. I don't want to obey, but I know I should. Lord, change my want. Now when we get there... We've taken a major step forward towards maturity and his ability to then change us. But if you just always go with how you feel, you're no better off than the pagan. That's what they do. Verse 39, listen to Calvin. And Calvin says of verse 39, which starts off, For this cause they could not believe. Calvin says, this is somewhat more harsh because if the words be taken in their natural meaning, the way was shut up against the Jews and the power of believing was taken from them because the prediction of the prophet judged them to blindness before they determined what choice they should make. I reply... There is no absurdity in this. 
if nothing could happen different from what God had foreseen. Calvin. Now listen to this, and this is a, a bit deeper. Direct quote from John 12, 39 and following. But it ought to be observed that the mere foreknowledge of God is not in itself the cause of events. Though in this passage, we ought to consider not so much the foreknowledge of God as his justice and vengeance. For God declares not what he beholds from heaven men will do, but what he himself will do. And that is, he will strike wicked men with giddiness and stupidity and thus will take vengeance on their obstinate wickedness. In this passage, he points out that the nearer and inferior cause why God intends that his word, which is in its own nature salutary, uh, good for us, and quickening, enlivening, shall be destructive and deadly to the Jews, it is because they deserved it by their obstinate wickedness. End quote. Calvin. Hmm. Track with me if it helps you. Chapter 6, verse 44 and 65. Go to 6, 44 and 65. And let's contrast what Jesus says in 6, 44 and 65 with what is said here in chapter 12. John 6:44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 6:65 No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. 12:38 and following for this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. Now listen very carefully to Calvin from his commentary on John 12, draw a distinction between these two. This punishment, it was impossible for them to escape because God had once decreed to give them over to a reprobate mind and to change the light of his word so as to make it darkness to them. For this latter prediction differs from the former in John 6. In this respect, that in the former passage, John 6, the prophet testifies that none believe, but those whom God of his free grace enlightens for his own good pleasure, the reason of which does not appear. For since all are equally ruined, God of his mere good pleasure distinguishes from others those whom he thinks fit to distinguish. So he grants to some and draws some. But Calvin continues, in the latter passage, ours, chapter 12, he speaks of the hardness by which God has punished the wickedness of ungrateful people. 
They who do not attend to these steps mistake and confound passages of Scripture which are quite different from each other, end quote, John Calvin. So when John quotes Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes. He, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. Even so, with the hardening of their hearts, these people had chosen evil. It was their deliberate choice and their own fault. Throughout this gospel, Jesus has highlighted their responsibility and guilt. This is not now being denied. What he is now saying is that the hand of God is in the consequences of their choice, just like Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over to their own desires. Well, chapter 12, verse 40. Chapter 12, verse 40 again. Calvin. Let us remember that the prophet speaks of unbelievers who had already rejected the grace of God. It is certain that all would continue to be such by nature if the Lord did not form to obedience to him those whom he elected. It is their own fault, therefore, if God does not choose to convert them because they were the cause of their own despair. End quote, Calvin. Augustine, again. God thus blinds and hardens simply by letting alone and withdrawing his aid. And God can do this by a judgment that is hidden, although not by one that is unrighteous. But then verse 41 like a burst of sunlight through dark clouds. He says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So, so when the prophet Isaiah was beholding the glory of Yahweh, he was beholding the glory of Jesus when he was God the Son. Isaiah 6.1 declares, I saw the Lord, Adonai, the Master, Sovereign. Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, or Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the Holy Spirit breathes out through John that when Isaiah was overwhelmed, beholding the throne room of the Adonai Yahweh, the sovereign Jehovah. He was looking at the pre-incarnate Son of God, God the Son. Wow. Rather changes your image of Jesus, doesn't it? Well, chapter 12, verses 42 through 43 is where we'll close with some intense pastoral application. You can glance at them. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing, lest they be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. 
Calvin's thought here is intensely practical. Quote, A striking instance truly of the grace of God. For when ungodliness has once prevailed, it is a sort of universal plague which infects with it contagion every part of the body. I would say in the West, and Illinois is among those leading the pack, ungodliness has prevailed and is infecting the whole. And it strikes me, this isn't in my notes, but Paul says it's not the spiritual, it's not the spiritual which is first, but the physical. And we've had what? A COVID virus, universal, but an indication of a deeper spiritual disease that has washed over this land. It is therefore, Calvin continues, a remarkable gift and special grace of God when amidst a people so corrupt there are some who remain untainted. He's speaking of the church. And yet we now perceive in the world the same grace of God for though ungodliness and contempt of God abound everywhere and though a vast multitude of men make furious attempts to exterminate utterly the doctrine of the gospel, yet it always finds some places of retreat and thus faith has what may be called its harbors, its places of refuge that it may not be entirely banished from the world. Hmm. May Providence Presbyterian be just such a harbor, a refuge for the children of God that he would call to this fold the next two, three generations. But make no mistake, there is work to be done. A wall must be be rebuilt. And that wall may be described tersely as the shorter catechism. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair begins the audio version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism with these words. On October 22, 1548, John Calvin addressed a letter to Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset and Lord Protector of England, during the reign of the young Edward VI, encouraging him to further the cause of the Reformation. He specifically underlined the importance of a catechism. Believe me, Monsignor, the Church of God will never preserve itself without a catechism. And therefore, if you desire to build an edifice which shall be of long duration and which shall not soon fall into decay, make provision in a good catechism. That's a hundred years before the Westminster larger and shorter. A pastor who does not endorse, promote, 
and facilitate the steady teaching and memorization of the shorter catechism is not worth his salt. And that is a hill worth dying on. Any Presbyterian church that is building toward the future, its pastor will firmly, by his life and action, promote the shorter catechism to protect the generations to come from the heresy that abounds. Well, verses 42 through 43, Calvin writes, 42 and 3, we just read that, they who swelled with arrogance scarcely acknowledged themselves to be men are not easily subdued by voluntary humility. Whoever then holds a high station in the world will, if he is wise, look with suspicion on his rank that it may not stand in his way. Calvin. He continues, quote, It must also be observed, out of verses 42 and 3, that rulers have less vigor and firmness because ambition always reigns them in, which is the most slavish of all dispositions. And to express it in a single word, earthly honors may be said to be golden fetters, which bind a man so that he cannot perform his duty with freedom. Therefore, persons who are placed in a low and mean condition ought to bear their lot with the greater patience, for they are at least delivered from many very bad snares. Yet the great and noble ought to struggle against their high rank, that it may not hinder them from submitting to Christ, John Calvin. And then Calvin says one sentence that is profound, and I'll make some pastoral application, and we'll close. His next sentence, zeal, in defending religion is indeed an excellent virtue. But if hypocrisy be added to it, no plague could be more dangerous. Zeal in defending religion is indeed an excellent virtue, but if hypocrisy be added to it, no plague can be more dangerous. To love and seek the approval of men is to not love and seek the approval of God. The one loving and seeking the approval of men will be obsessed with image, the protection of and cultivation of his or her image. Beware the man of great oratorical skill. Beware the man of great oratorical skill. Beware the preacher who delights you with pizzazz. 
For where the gift of preaching is gifted, if there be no humility, there will be hypocrisy, and no plague can be more dangerous. At best, greatness of preaching pales to insignificance behind humble pastoring. A preacher who does not have the shepherd's heart is a curse. A preacher who does not have the shepherd's heart is a blight and a curse. This is a hill worth dying on. This church is unusually gifted to learn from history. Let us pray. Father, we confess the truth of thy inerrant, inspired word. And it is with soberness and solemnness that we, we read of the unbelief of your own people. We read how they reached a place, though you testified to them, you sent prophets, you finally sent your son, whom they murdered. And so you blinded them. You caused their feet to stumble. But with Augustine, Lord, we do not pretend to understand all things. But we do know this. If I hear God's voice today, far be it from me to harden my heart. Lord, I don't want to end up being given my own appetite. But we pray for this church. We pray that you'll guide us. We pray that you'll lead your choice of a shepherd who can preach to this church. Humbly we plead this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.